Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa, and I am continuing my interview series today with some gentlemen that I have known for many, many, many years. I'm happy to have them on the show. And we're going to be talking today about a company called Stewart Partners. And I'm pleased to have with me today Jim Gold, who's the CEO of Stewart Partners, and Doug Kenfield, who's the head of wealth management at Stewart Partners. How are you guys doing? Good, Frank. Doing well. Thanks for having us on, Frank. Awesome. Awesome. I'm happy that you guys were able to get on in such short notice. I appreciate it. For those of you that are listening for the first time, thanks for joining us. We hope that the conversation that we have is enjoyable and you learn something from us. Again, this is just a dialogue and a conversation amongst guys that have known each other for, I guess, 20 plus years, I guess, at this point, long time. But for everyone listening, I think that there's a lot of things going on in the industry and there's a lot of changes going on in the industry with a lot of movement and advisors, wirehouse firms, primarily wirehouse firms are having a tough time, in my opinion, evolving with the times. And I'm not sure whether that's from a willingness to just not answer the call to the independent or evolved space, or candidly, maybe an ignorance. I don't know which one it is, and I don't know which one's worse. And I'm very particular about who I have on our show because I value everybody's time that's listening. I want to make sure that we're always bringing real value to you. So I asked Jim and Doug to be on because of the platform and the service that their firm, Stewart Partners, offers and how it's a little bit of a both. It's a little bit of, I'm not going to say wire, but a little bit of retail. It's probably the better way to put it, like a retail experience and independence. And I thought with all the news coming out, with different firms coming out with new models, what a great time to have Jim and Doug on and really just talk about Stewart Partners and where they see it going and how they see that platform and partnership with Raymond James helping their advisors and potential future advisors. So Jim, I'll start with you since you've been obviously since the beginning, I guess seven or eight years now. I remember when you guys first came out with this thing, which was a great idea and I give you kudos, but maybe just take our listeners back to the beginning and just talk about who is Stuart Partners and what are you all about and what does that model look like? Absolutely. And again, thanks for having us on, Frank. I think, Stuart, where it's very different is the structure is very different. I think the leadership team, and as we all share on this call, I think the sort of common gene amongst the leadership team is Smith Barney. And I think looking back to, as you said, traditional wealth management firms, somewhere in the last 20 years, things started to change. It just continues to accelerate, I think, for the worse especially amongst the culture, the branch system, what that used to look like versus what it looks like today. So from the inside, having spent my whole career at a major firm, we saw the flight to independence. We saw the flight continuing. And this goes back, as you said, we officially launched seven years ago next month. We saw the trend to independence. And we said, for some folks going fully independent, coming out of a traditional firm environment, that may be a bridge too far. Go out from a branch system to all the way on your own, setting up your own shop and doing all the things that are involved with that. So we said, what if we could give them both, as you said, Frank, give them that best of both worlds, give them all the resources of a traditional firm with all the benefits of being independent, 
But critically then, get rid of the detriments of both. We know the detriments of both, we don't spend any time on that. But I think that's one of the first, we talk about differentiators and we'll go through over the course of this conversation what they are. I think one of the real key differentiators is we're one of the very few firms out there that the advisors joining us have permanent ongoing support. So we have built a brand system. We now have 22 offices across 13 states, but each market has a complex manager equivalent, has multiple operations managers, compliance officers. So there's a ton of on-site resources there. And we look at that as being sort of a concierge that we call a full service independent. So it's give you that best of the platform, the brand name, a good company behind you, coupled with, I think sort of today would be called old school local resource that has sort of gone away. We've had a really great start. And that's an interesting way to kick off seven years by calling it a start. But we look at so much more to accomplish. 30 days now, seven years ago, we had one advisor. Our 130th advisor joined today. We're knocking on 16 billion in assets. We'll do well over 100 million in revenue this year. And you go back to differentiators of any other firm built to this size, no one has ever done it without taking in tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in private capital. We're the only one that I know of. And we've talked to a lot of people and no one's ever come up with a name. So I'm going to take them at their word. But I think that was deliberate on our part. And I know we're going to talk about our outside partners, which we welcomed last year. But for us, it was a couple of things. We didn't want to give up control of the company. And in starting a firm, if you have nothing to sell except a concept, you're going to give up a lot of control. So we were deliberate. We were thoughtful. We waited for the right time to take in some outside capital. And we made that decision last year. So it's been an amazing journey. We have so much more to do. And we have a lot of really cool things we're working on. So we're excited for the future as well. Look, I think that you made a great decision at the very beginning with partnering with Raymond James, and I give them kudos for essentially getting into bed with an idea. That's really all it was at the beginning. And I haven't worked with Raymond James for a long time now. There really wasn't anything like this. They didn't really have anything like this out there. They have different models, but nothing like this. So I give them a lot of credit. Before we go on in terms of markets, but When you talk about the branch structure, for advisors that are listening to this that are actually sitting in an old Morgan Stanley office, maybe it was an old Smith Barney branch or whatever, UBS, Payneweber, whatever, is it the same structure where you have 10 or 15, 20 offices, you have a branch manager in the corner, you have a support staff system? Does it look just like that? Or is there a little bit of distance between having a sort of a local branch manager whose job is 80% of the day is just to go out and recruit? which is what it is today. When we were all doing it, it was about running a branch and managing the P&L and doing all that stuff. So it's different today. So what does that actually look like in the branch? So someone was to close their eyes. What does walking into one of your branches look like? It's similar, but different in the sense of we now have a second model. We'll talk about the traditional W2 model. That was where we launched. So W2 model, the average office is built for about 15 advisors. And we look at a market to take New York Tri-State or New England is a local example for us. You have multiple offices across that. You don't have a branch manager sitting in every office. So it's sort of a hub and spoke and there's a complex director equivalent, a couple of operations managers. I think the difference too is that when you think about all of the resources that Raymond James provides, we're sort of belt and suspenders and crazy glue above that. We're adding in nine and 10 compliance people and really having them help facilitate 
that relationship with Raymond James and making sure that we're following all the regulatory requirements. But we're also bringing people in one at a time. So we all inherited branches. It's like inheriting a book. Sometimes there's clients you don't enjoy working with as much as you do others. We don't have that problem because we brought them in one at a time and one good team in person at a time. So very, very different environment. And the word partner was very deliberate as well. So when you invite someone to be your partner in the firm, there's sort of a cross sort of obligation there that they expect the partnership will support them. They're going to be supportive of the partnership. So I would say we have a no jerk policy and we try to enforce it on the way in, which is the most important part to enforce it then. Once they're here, it's too late. It's a lot harder to do it on the way out. So that's right. That's cool. Maybe you can talk about then understanding that structure. And Doug, you might, as the head of wealth management, want to address this one. But is your approach to locations, is it a deliberate approach? Meaning, do you have a specific plan of attack on, hey, we want to open up offices? We're going to open up offices in different markets. Or is it a function of when a firm like mine brings somebody to the firm in? Spokane, Washington, and maybe you don't have an office there, but you're going, well, Spokane might not be a bad idea. And it's a $2 million team. Can you maybe, Doug, walk us through what that logic is in terms of your expansion plans? That's a good point, Frank. And it's really kind of both. Obviously, there's some market centers or city centers that we want to be establishing key market areas, whether it's Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., down in Florida, Texas, Dallas and Houston. So there's some key markets that we want to be in that we think we can attract a number of advisors and build a good size office in. There's also going to be markets, as you mentioned, where let's say, Frank, you're going to call and say, look, I have a, an advisor that really wants to be, you can be a good example. We just built an office in Norfolk, Virginia, had a team come over there. We hadn't been in Norfolk before. That's not a major market for us, but it was an opportunity and advisors wanted to establish a presence there. It worked for us. It was a sufficient size to really get established there. So we established an office, it started out temporary office. We're building the new office and that'll be done here in the next couple of months. So it's a little bit of both. And if you look at our what we're trying to structure right now is we have five divisional presidents or five divisions, so to speak. And that's an addition of one just recently because we've got established initially up in the New England market, D.C. and then New England. And now we're all the way down to Clearwater, Florida out to Texas. We have Houston, Dallas, and Austin. And then we just established an you know, office up in Clayton, Missouri. It's a suburb of St. Louis. It's an affiliate office of ours, our first in the affiliate model. So that's quite a bit of expansion. As Jim mentioned, we have 22 offices in total uh, in the W-2 channel, the plus the one additional office in the affiliate channel. And what we're looking to do with this addition of the new division down in Florida is really to get established in the Florida and the Carolinas. We have offices in Clearwater and Hendersonville, North Carolina, but we really want to get established in the Carolinas and throughout Florida. Then also that allows our divisional president, Chris Barton, down in the central division. Basically, Texas has responsibility for- Another Smith Barney guy, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) They're everywhere, Frank. They're everywhere. The common DNA, so to speak. Hey, we ran a great firm. Oh, we certainly it did. It was a great Grant firm back then. replicate that here at Stewart Partners. And no joke. Chris has the ability to kind of help us expand throughout the Midwest. And I spent nine years in the Midwest, a lot of terrific markets in the Midwest for us. I also spent five years out in the West Coast too. And that's an area we like to get into the West Coast before the end of the year. So I look at all the great markets that we have in this country and we want Stewart to really be established in many of them. And a lot of it's the opportunity that might come as a result of an advisor looking to establish with Stuart Partners. And some of it's going to be us deciding, look, this is a market we want to be in. 
let's build it and find some advisors that want to join us to start the market. Cool. So you mentioned something and was going to cover it a little bit later on in terms of the evolution of the firm, but maybe we can start. It's come up now a few times. You're mentioning the affiliate model. And I did a podcast a little while ago about what got you to where you are today is not going to get you to where you want to be tomorrow. That requires an evolution of who you are as an individual and also as a business. And LPL just came out with this new employee model, a true W-2 model. And so in a way, it's like you guys are both evolving, but you came from a different place. So you're evolving in the other direction. Maybe talk a little bit about your affiliate model and how that's different than the W-2 model that you have. And either one of you, doesn't matter who answers. The affiliate, so I think in simplistic terms, just think of it as a 1099 versus W-2. And I think for us, Frank, as you said, I mean, we got a lot of advice when we started the firm. And one of the folks we spoke to said, you have a terrific business plan, but don't ever be afraid to evolve. And we started noticing probably middle of last year, we had a couple of really good opportunities with great teams. And we were right there. And they, basically, at the end of the day, they said, we just want to have our own office, though. We want to run our own P&L. We want to have more local control. And geez, if you had the opportunity to do that, we would love to join you, but you don't, so we're not going to join. So it kind of for us was a moment to say, we should address this and figure this out. So the 1099 is for the advisor that says, I do want to have my own office. I want to run my own local P&L. I want to have local responsibility. But that being said, I want everything else that is steward. I want the board of directors. I want the equity component. I want to be a partner. I want to have that local resources, both operationally, compliance, coaching, training. I want to have the local meetings with all the other steward advisors sharing ideas. I don't want to be totally on an island. So it's more of a financial decision for them. But now we have a model to facilitate that. And as you said, Frank, when I think about other firms out there, listen, LPL is a terrific firm, been around for a long time, massive organization. When I think about firms that are starting, say, the last 10 years, I can't think of any or very few that are out there that can really sit with an advisor and say, look, we're agnostic. If you want your own branch, you want your own P&L, great, we can help facilitate that. If you want to be in our branch because you think that's a bridge too far, terrific, we can help you there as well. So we're not sort of selling against ourselves anymore. We can really, I think, be more of a consultant to them, as I know you are, you talk to recruits, is what is the right choice for you? And we're fine either way. A little bit different economics for that model in the cash component up front. They get the exact same equity grant, though, whether you're a 1099 or W-2. And then we build them a custom P&L really after doing a deep dive on the complexion of their business and understanding where the money is going to be made. And that's a collaborative, very open conversation. So as Doug talked about, we were really excited to have a team from Clayton join us. Great group of people and a very significant business. There's a billion three in assets. So it was a nice way, a nice validation. And they were one of the ones that said, this was back when the whole idea was on the drawing board. They said, boy, we're glad you're working on this because if you didn't have it, we just couldn't join you. We really felt it was the right move. Are there minimums on both sides? So to open up an office, a retail W-2 office, and it is W-2, even though you're providing everything, it's W-2. Is there a minimum size to start a branch and or join a branch? And how does that minimum change if it's an affiliate model? So starting a branch, I think we always talk about sort of three to five million. And really that number is driven by the geography and the rent. So if it's Miami, it's going to be five million. If it's Norfolk, Virginia, three million is great. 
joining an existing branch, we talk about an average production of a million dollars. We brought in a bunch of people that are not doing a million and they're either looking to be part of a succession situation and join an existing team in our branch, or they're sort of a rising star coming in saying, hey, I want to be independent. I've done my seven or eight years at Merrill Lynch or wherever, and I'm ready to go to an independent firm. So that's sort of where we are there. The 1099 option, it gives us a lot more flexibility. And I think what's interesting for us is up to recently from the outside world, people would say, well, stewards are firm to look at if you're at one of the big four traditional wealth management firms. Now having a 1099 option, we're able to look at existing independent advisors who would never have spoken to us before. So I think it gives us a much wider audience to speak to. We've had a ton of interest in the model. We have a lot of conversations going on. And because they're going to own the local P&L, the rent cost is really not stewards' concern, it's their concern. So it's more of a conversation with them if they haven't opened a branch yet, just understand the economics of that. Skipping around a little bit, since we're on the topic of evolving and your partnership with Raymond James, maybe talk a little bit about that. But as it relates to Raymond James and the evolution of multi-custody and all that stuff, where do you see that going with Stewart Partners and probably more so on the affiliate model, I would imagine, than on the W-2 model. Is that a conversation that you guys are having like, hey, shit, we just lost another guy to want to do Schwab or TD or whatever. Do you see that happening or do you think you're just going to stay in your lane and play your game? Yeah, I don't know that it's our game, but I think we're going to stay in our lane. I mean, so the Ray J folks have been phenomenal and would really have exceeded all of our expectations. They truly want to help you. They truly treat you with respect. They've built an amazing home office with an inordinate amount of resources to serve the advisor force. When I first heard, and you know this, Frank, when I first heard about Raymond James puts in writing, you own your book. And if you leave Raymond James, they don't solicit your clients. That's all you need to know. That tells you right there how the firm thinks and how they act. It's funny. I always ask a person, when someone asks me about multi-custodial recruit, and I always say, why do you want to have multi-custodian? Well, if custodian A is good at this and custodian B is good at that, and custodian C is good at that. And I say, well, what if you have one custodian that's great at all of that? Oh, if I had one really good custodian, I'd much rather not have multi-custodian. And as you know, the preponderance of independent advisors, while they have all the choice in the world, 90-something percent of their assets are at one custodian. And they chose that custodian for whatever reason. To me, it's like having a fire extinguisher underneath your kitchen sink. It's great to have, but most people don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you don't want to use it. You don't exactly. want to use that I, fire extinguisher. I actually agree with you. I think that there's some recruiting potential down the road. You can bring a guy on that's at Schwab or whatever, but what ends up happening is most people feel like now you have some clients at Schwab, some clients at Fidelity, and now you have to use aggregation tools to create reporting. And it's like, just be good at one thing. I want to throw a, this is not a little bit of a curveball question, but I'm just thinking about- I swear dog then. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually. So you've been doing this for seven or eight years. And Doug, you came on board, I guess it's been about a year, maybe roughly. A little bit. Late October, I came on board. So I would be curious. So maybe you still have some of the battle scars from being in the W2 space in a wirehouse. I'm curious about your experience- having more recently come from that space, I know there was a little bit of time in between, but more experience coming from that space, working with those advisors. What has been your impression or wow moments like that you didn't understand? Because 
all three of us know when we were in that world, the independent thing was some oddball thing out there that uh, you don't want to go independent. You got one foot out the door. How many times have we talked to advisors? This is the only place you can do your business. You need this platform to replicate your business. Without this platform, without our infrastructure and resources, you're not going to exist. You're through. You're never going to make it. That's exactly what happened. When I left Morgan Stanley, he started getting a chance to kind of evaluate things, did a lot of exploration in the business, talked to a lot of people in the business, and you quickly realize that what's happened is, yes, what's happening in the independent space, you can support the business. In fact, I'd have to say the infrastructure and the resources, they're more nimble and flexible than they are at a warehouse because it doesn't take you two or three years to, to change direction or incorporate something new onto the platform as it does in a warehouse. I've been through that. And I've also been through it from the asset management side, knowing how difficult and challenging it is to get something on the platform at a warehouse. So I think that's been the real, I guess, perspective I've taken from this is, yes, the infrastructure is fantastic. The resources are fantastic. And to move to an advisor-centric firm like Stuart Partners and Raymond James, where it's about the advisor, about the client, and what can be accomplished with that perspective, and then making the advisors as well as the CAMs and the whole team, the equity owners, kind of gets back to that old partnership feel that we had at Smith Barney. And I think that that's really important. And that's been the difference, how things have evolved from the time that we all believe this is the only place you can do the business. Yeah, I know. And how many times you brought over over 100 people, how many times have you probably heard, man, I should have done this sooner? Exactly. (laughs) It's always about four months after they get here, though. That's after the transition's over. (laughs) Exactly. There's one of these transitions like, oh, my God, what did I do? And then once they get up and running, they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this sooner. And just the flexibility, too, like, like during the pandemic, when everybody's been having to work remotely, just the flexibility and let's say the social media policies and procedures, what have you, what our advisors have been able to do to connect with clients and town hall meetings and videos. You and I talked about this once before, about how you do videos. And we've been able to do that with our advisors. And it's worked exceptionally well in terms of being able to connect with advisors as well as prospects. Let me just talk about, and Jim, you mentioned this earlier on in the conversation about outside money and all that stuff and your partner. And I guess about a year ago, my dates might be a little bit wrong. last man, a year ago. You took on a partner called Sinusure. And maybe talk a little bit about, because a lot of people say, oh my God, you took private equity money. You sold your soul to the devil. I don't necessarily believe that's the case all the time, because if you find the right one, it could be really positive. And so maybe just talk a little bit about that relationship, how it's helped you up till now, and how do you see it helping you in the future moving forward? We went through a process and we had worked with Jeffries, the investment banks. We went through a real traditional process. We had about 30 potential investors, meetings. We ultimately had about 11 offers. The signature money, it did two things from the outside perspective is one, up to taking the money in every recruiting conversation, the recruit would say, what the equity you're going to give me sounds great. What's it really worth though? If someone was going to buy you today, what is that worth? So by taking in the outside capital, you put a real value on the firm. It was a $50 million investment. So it was a significant investment. I think importantly, it was an absolute minority of the firm. So it's less than 20%. And I think the second thing it did which no other firm has ever done this, is we took half of that money and we created an internal liquidity event for every partner at the firm. So we basically created a tender offer. We allowed everyone to participate as long as they were here past short-term cap gains, had to be here a year and a day. 
everyone got the exact same terms. So in the case of many other firms that have been built, when you hear about a liquidity event, and investor A is taken out by investor B, none of those dollars ever made it down to the branch level, the assistant level, the advisor level. It's someone else trading the paper at the top of the house. So again, I think a really unique achievement that we're proud of there. The last thing I would say with Signature, or the last two things is, and this is maybe advice to others that are thinking about taking in capital, it's like everything else you ever do. It's all what's in the contract. So one of the really important parts of the contract, and I think it speaks to a true partnership and Keith Taylor, who's the lead investor from that group that works with us, he likes the word alignment and that's exactly the right word. So they don't have, for example, what they call a put clause. So every other offer we had basically had a term that said, hey, we're going to give you 50 million bucks. And in five years, we have the right to come back to you and demand $150 million. Oh, and by the way, if you paying us $150 million bankrupts the company, we're okay with that. So in Sinusure's case, there isn't any put clause. So they're shoulder to shoulder with us. We're all going to build a great company. But if they ever want liquidity, they have to come to us. They have to come to the board and we'd have to agree to it. So very, very different structurally. And I will tell you, and Doug's seen this in his time here, they are extraordinarily active and extraordinarily willing to help us. They're on Zoom calls all the time now with recruits because recruits say, hey, I'd love to talk to them. Why did they invest in you? What do they think about Stuart? I mean, this is your guy's company. Of course, you love your company, but I want to hear from the outsider why they did it. So really, really helpful to have that. And for us, we're starting to get more and more into M&A activity, I think, between the 1099 and being very financially, fiscally sound. We now basically have a free inside investment bank. We have all the knowledge and the wisdom of Sinershore and their folks to help us as we consider any opportunity out there. So such a wonderful partnership, and we couldn't be happier to have on our team. Awesome. So that sort of brings you to my last question when you talk about M&A and almost like sort of, again, a continuation of evolving the business. Where do you see, you had W2, you have affiliate 1099 model. Where do you see the firm going in the future? Are there any other models or any other evolutions of the business today that you have talked about, you're thinking about? Like, man, in a, I would imagine you guys, high supporter and everybody's all sitting around and you're going, you know, it'd be awesome if we did, like, let's do this or let's do that. When you're independent, you're business owners and you're entrepreneurs like we all are now, it's exciting to be able to not have to go to some major committee. Go to the committee. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly go to the right. committee and we're going to have a meeting about a meeting. And that's this. So I would imagine when you guys are sitting around and you're thinking about how to take over the world, like I do all the time, you have ideas. What kind of things are you thinking about that without, again, without sort of letting people in behind the curtains of things that you don't want to know about, but how do you see the firm evolving in general? I think the first evolution from the outside, as you said, is you go from a firm that's 100% W-2, pretty much 100% wirehouse recruits to a firm with multiple models with all the same benefits. We have just sort of cracked the door open to all the independents that are out there. And as you know, there's tens of thousands of them. So I think the W-2 and the 1099 will both be very significant growth engines. Time will tell what does that look like? Is it five years from now? Is it 50-50? Is it 70-30? I don't know. But it does also open the door to M&A opportunities where I think with the COVID and the market, and I think everything else that's gone on, there's a lot of firms out there that are a billion to five billion that are saying, 
are we set up for the future? Do we have a game plan? Is it time to bring on other investors or bring in partners like a steward? So it's really opened a lot of new doors there. I think the other things we're focusing on is really getting into advanced marketing. Like Doug said, I mean, I look at the number of advisors at Steward that are doing podcasts, that are doing YouTube video. It's up a thousand percent, especially since COVID, even though the resource has always been there. So we're really diving into that a lot. We're working on the marketing structure. But from a growth perspective, Doug really helps lead the efforts. I'll let him talk about some of the new things we're doing there, both internally and some of the markets that we have going on. Our advisors trying to get to help them to collaborate among each other throughout this whole pandemic and working remotely. We've had a lot of calls with our asset management partners and what have you, taking advantage of that and doing it exclusively for sewer partners. And secondly, these advisor roundtables that we've hosted, we've had our advisor council host on Fridays. And what we do is we have four or five advisors get on with a particular idea and then other advisors ask questions. It's just a great way to kind of share ideas and really kind of see different things. And in terms of talking about video and some of the things that advisors do in terms of communicating with clients and prospects while working remotely, it's really been fantastic. It's really helped us in terms of between new ads, new clients to the firm. So that's been a, a big help. We also established a coaching series. We took about six or seven of the top coaching organizations out there. We've asked them to do a presentation, providing some content, and then talk a little bit about what they can do for advisors in terms of helping them on a regular basis. But the content's been very helpful. You just go from social media to business development to team structure and development, all sorts of different types of things. So we've been very proactive in terms of helping our advisors, in terms of ideas, in terms of focusing on their business, building their business, structuring and building their team, succession opportunities, taking advantage of all the resources that Raymond James has for succession opportunities. And they have nine people in the department to help advisors value their business and work on succession opportunities within store partners here. So that's been a big plus for us as well. So lots of things that we're doing to really help advisors focus and build their businesses. Awesome. I think that's great. I think some of that stuff, when you were talking about it, I was like, oh, that's reminiscent about what good branch managers used to do for their advisors. And that was bring stuff to the table, get a group of advisors out to dinner that talk about ideas, share ideas, because they don't always do that in the office because they're just doing their thing. And Exactly. And I think there's a lot of independent firms that are great firms, but one of the things that I see advisors lacking is that kind of communication and sharing of ideas. They can share when they go to conferences and stuff like that, but- I think that's a unique thing that you guys bring to the table that we all grew up with. And that was, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to help your advisors and collaborate and do all that stuff. So it's driven by the equity, Frank, because if you think about it, many of our other firms out there, they don't have an equity component or the advisor participating. So here you want the advisor next to you to succeed because that's good for both of you as a shareholder. I mean, we always tell the story when recruits come in, Our advisors are voluntarily sending their administrative teams to go help the new team process paperwork. I mean, it's just unheard of at any other firm I've ever spoken to. Wow. That's a great point. They all want each other to succeed because they're all equity owners. I would say it's not you against the firm anymore. You are the firm. Awesome. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. Went a little bit longer. For those of you that may not have heard, we had a train go by, so we had to put the thing on pause for a few minutes. But I'm always evolving and we had to evolve with that. So I love our space and I don't want to move. And if that's the worst thing I have to deal with, that's okay. But thank you for your time. This was awesome. I hope 
that everybody was listening really learned something about Stuart Partners and how they can be a great fit for you. I would say, aside from, of course, talking with me and my firm, reaching out to Stuart would be a great opportunity if you're looking at making a move and you don't know which way to go, retail or independent, you're not sure. Well, Stuart Partners has a multi-option approach, a solution as I'm calling it, I guess, and they can talk to you about it. But thanks for everyone listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave comments on our podcast about what you thought was great about the conversation today. And we look forward to hearing everybody again. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Frank. Frank. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts. Podcasts.